You guys ready to get in the word? All right, we'll be in John 15. We're going to be talking about Jesus and his declaration that he is the true vine. And we're going to be talking about an abiding faith and what it means to have an abiding faith in Christ. So if you'll turn there to John 15. Um, by way of introduction, I want to just give you a little background. My, my wife and I, we, we used to own property. We, used to have, we bought an orchard with a house on it, obviously. But, um, you know, it was a learning curve for us. And God was gracious to us in that learning curve. We, uh, you know, in many ways, maybe we bit off more than we could handle. We didn't know what we were doing. We thought we were instantly farmers, I guess. Um, and so, um, knowing nothing, uh, God had to teach us a lot of things, and there were a lot of simple truths and a lot of love that he had to show us in that process. And, um, and, and in doing so, some of it was humorous, some of it harder to swallow. You know, the, you know, the $2,000 water bills that come with an orchard was not fun. Didn't, I didn't realize that there were two water meters, I guess, when we bought the property. That wasn't disclosed, so we saw the bills for the water meter that went to the house and not the orchard. And so that was fun to figure out. Um, but then there were other things that God was just, you know, just showed us in, in humor and in love. And, um, and uh, one of them was, you know, my, my wife had to have chickens. And so we did that. We built the whole chicken coop, did that kind of thing, got baby chickens and raised them since they were little. And I, I thought, well, if you got chickens, you got to have a turkey because we can let that thing grow big and eat it, right? That's what you do with turkeys. And um, so we got one. We named him Tom. Tom got bigger and bigger, and Tom laid eggs. And, and so when Tom laid eggs, he, my family started calling him Tomasita, and, and, and now we were not allowed to eat Tom. And so that backfired. And so um, then my wife decided she was going to milk goats, and so she was going to get dairy goats. And so she went to another farmer in Duluth and bought this goat, and bought a couple goats, and... Um, but she bought this one, and he said, well, you know, don't, don't worry that it doesn't have udders. You know, once you, once you breed it, once you have kids, you know, the udders will come, you know, and, uh, and don't, don't worry about it. And being as naive as we are, we never really thought much of it. Later that day, I get a text. I'm at work, and Autumn says, there's something wrong with the goat. <laughs> and so I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, and soon it is, well, that, that goat's peeing out of the wrong area. And so my natural response is, well, now you understand why I do not want to milk the goats. I mean, I want nothing to do with this. And so we had to go back. We had to go back to this farmer, explain that this was not going to work out. This goat was not going to get pregnant, and we were not milking this goat. And so we had to get a replacement. Now, then there were other areas. You know, as bad as we were at farming and figuring out gender issues, we were worse botanists. And so... On our property, we had a lot of fruit trees, mostly uh, grapefruits and avocados that we sold to Sunkist, and, and we also had a lot of just miscellaneous fruit trees. And we couldn't tell what the fruit trees were, many of them, we didn't know. So we had to wait till they came into season and they produced fruit, and sometimes even when they produced fruit, we had to take it to somebody and say, we don't know what this is. We, and, um, and so we had a lot of miscellaneous fruit trees on the property, but two of our favorites were plum trees and my wife loved white peaches. So there was a couple white peach trees down by the creek, and um, they didn't look too good. But my wife t took the liberty and just hacked away at them, trimmed them up, pruned them. Um, I thought she was crazy because there really wasn't much there to cut away at, and there was really mostly just a trunk when she did it. And me, I spotted three plum trees by the driveway. They looked beautiful, my favorite fruit. 
and I wasn't touching them because they were just getting watered like crazy. They are growing like crazy. You could see all the fruit already on the branches, and no way I was messing with that. And so um, I left it alone. And as you might imagine, you know, this really gets to me a great picture of what Jesus starts to explain here in John 15 is that my wife's peach trees flourished. So, so many peaches, she was even canning them, um, just, just loving her peaches. I, on the other hand, got very little plums out of the deal. Most of them, the weight of just the plums alone, snapping the branches, making a big mess. Um, many of them not getting enough nutrition to them, basically becoming really bitter, really hard, not getting enough water. Um, and all because I thought the trees looked good. I don't want to touch them. You know, and that's, that's a lot of what our spiritual lives are like sometimes. You know, on the surface, things look great. We don't want to mess with it. Why mess with something that's good? But Jesus is always refining us. He's always pruning us. He's always cleansing us, always allowing us to grow. And if we're not growing, we're dying. It's one of my favorite sayings and something I live by. And this is the work of the Lord. He wants to grow us. He wants to grow us into his image. And the problem with that plum tree was it not only affected me, I got robbed of my plums, but just the mess that it left behind. So it affected my kids. My kids get to help me clean up the mess. The mess wind up on all over the driveway, people running them over, just making a bigger mess. And that's kind of what our life looks like when we don't abide in Christ, when we don't allow God to prune, when we don't allow that work to be done, we wind up creating for ourselves a bigger mess. And so as, as we get into John 15 here, you know, I can relate in so many ways. And, I, and, and in the culture, they related. If we take a step back in John 14... I'll pick up at verse 29. It says, And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me, gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. And so what Jesus, in chapter 14, um, He's just finishing one of his I am statements. And all through the book of John, he's really, Jesus is tying himself in with God the Father. He's establishing his deity. And this is a new foreign concept to them because all they've known is the Father. And so the, this, this, is, this is a new concept altogether for them. And so, and, as, and what he's declaring here in John 14 is, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And he begins here, in 14, he's, they're, at, they're having the Passover dinner, and the disciples are all gathered together, and God starts to do a work. He starts to tell them, where I'm going, you can't go with me. I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourselves. I'm going to do this cleansing, purifying work, a redeeming work. I'm going to carry your sins to the cross. You, I'm going to fulfill what the Father has called me to do. Now I'm going to explain here in John 15 what you're called to do. And so... Here's where we pick up in John 15. God's encouragement is for us, you know, all through the I am statements previous to this, he's pointing to life and that he is the source of life. But now here at 15, he'll point to them and he'll tell them that basically he, he, he's going to encourage them to remain in him, to not forsake that, to not leave that, knowing that the disciples will do that very thing. They'll get to a spot where they distance themselves, where they don't see him physically anymore. Where, they, where they, don't, they question everything that was taught to them. And they'll have to be drawn back to them. The promise of the scriptures is that if we draw near to him, he'll draw near to us. 
And so, so here, he's, he's basically trying to bring across an abiding faith to them for us to remain, to dwell, to continue to endure, to tarry, to stay put with him and not to forsake that, that intimate relationship that Christ has for each and every one of us. And so here in this passage, you know, they're, they're going to the Garden of Gethsemane in John chapter 18. This is where Jesus will ultimately be arrested. Jesus will go to the cross. And before that, he's taken this opportunity to once again just emphasize to them that I'm doing something you can't do. You cannot do on your own. Without me, you are nothing. And so Jesus being Jesus, of course, speaking in parables, using illustrations, using metaphors, he must see a vine. Maybe it's even the vine on top of the temple in the front entry there. Maybe he's walking past a vineyard common to them. But he takes this opportunity to point point it out and to start using this illustration of the vine. So let's, let's read in John 15 together. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that I may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you and abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Listen, friends, if you get nothing from today's message and, not, and anything from looking at this illustration, you should walk away with this that you, you were called as a believer of Christ to bear much fruit. And not that you would just bear fruit and that there would be evidence of your, of your Christianity and your faith and your salvation in him, but that you would bear more fruit. That it's a constant growing process, that God is constantly refining us, calling us to do more. And not just do more, but to live a life righteous that points to him. And, if you, and, for, and with that, what he says is that, that God would be glorified through us and experience his love, that we would experience his love and fullness of joy. And then many of us, I think, are being robbed of that fullness of joy. And it's, 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 it's saddening to see sometimes in, in each other's lives, in, in my own life, and to know that times I've denied the very I am statements of Christ here. I've denied his grace. I've denied what he's done on the cross for me, that he would love me so much that he would take it to the cross. And so... You know, I think, I think what drew me back to this passage, really, in John 15, is just thinking over and over about that. And as a pastor, we have the ability often to minister to people and to do counseling and to meet with people one-on-one. And um, it's often referred to as counseling. I like to refer to it more as discipleship, and that's what I think it should be. See, discipleship happens on the front end. And we can prevent those, those times and those, that bitterness of life and, and, you know, just that haste of just wanting to 
just figure things out in our own strength and our own might um, with true discipleship. And sometimes we find ourselves, like, like dealing with the plum tree, just creating for ourselves a bigger mess. And we're cleaning up this mess and we're trying to make things right in our own minds. But when we really just need a deeper, more intimate relationship with Christ. And he'll, he'll reveal those things and he'll guide us and he'll direct us and he'll cleanse us and he'll, he'll lift us up. And so, you know, early on as a pastor, I had a pastor tell me, hey, you know, I can finish most counseling sessions in about five minutes. And it really comes down to an abiding faith. I can ask them, you know, hey, where are they at with their reading in the scriptures? What's their prayer life like? When was the last time they were in church? When was the last time they went to a fellowship event within the church? And I, quite honestly, I thought that sounded kind of arrogant to think that I could sit down with people and I could be done with it and sum them all up in five minutes. But what I found, quite honestly, is the more I meet with people and the more I minister and the more I disciple people, there's a lot of truth in what that pastor has said. And I don't think it should be that way. I think we ought to point people to God's love and his grace and on the front end. And we ought to do discipleship instead of crisis counseling. And so that's what brings me to John 15. And because I think if we abide in Christ, we, we, we come back to allowing his love to reign through us. And we, we're drawn to him that he may draw near to us and that we, he may grow us. He may, he may make us be righteous in his eyes and glorify him and that we would point people to him. And so let's look as we, before we dissect John 15, let's look at the, the attributes of the vine and the characters that we'll be discussing here. So we'll throw a slide up on the screen for you. The vine representing Christ. The vine dresser is God the Father. He's the one that prunes and cares for us. The fruit branches, they're, they're believers in Christ. The, those with evidence of their lives. The empty branches are, you know, the non-believers, never showing any fruit, never, you know, professing what they want from their mouths, but never having any evidence that they've surrendered to Christ. And then, of course, there's the fruit, the evidence of growth and maturity for us as a believer, you know, being seen through the love that we have, the joy, the peace, and the long-suffering that we would have for one another. Let's look at verse 1. He starts right off the bat. He says, I am the true vine. I think we could stop almost right there because he makes that declaration because if there's a true vine, what, what's the implication, of course, is that there's a false vine? There's something that we, we are seeking often and we get, you know, we get confused as believers and we get misled and we put our hope in things that we shouldn't. And so Jesus is right off the bat trying to explain to him, I am the source of everything for you. I am the truth. On the heels of I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the true vine. The, tr- the truth really represents, um, and that word really throughout Scripture represents eternal, heavenly, divine. You know, Israel was imperfect, but Christ is perfect. And they understood this. To them, the, the vine and the whole concept of the vine was not new to them. In Jewish culture, one, they were an agricultural society, but more importantly, if you look back at the Old Testament and you look at their heritage, that the, 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 the vine really represented, God's vine represented Israel. And Israel never having, fulfilled, having full fulfillment in God's joy and living up to all that God really wanted for them. And so the, the, God the Father, he, he, he blesses those connected and, to the vine dresser, those connected to the vine, and so he, 
He, he accomplishes it by caring for the vine, for trimming it, cutting off the branches, those that did not bear fruit. And he just basically just cleansing and lifting up and doing everything that he possibly can. But yet, in the case of Israel and what they've known, that the vine represents judgment. It's always represented something negative in the Old Testament up until this point. And, if you, and you can see this in Isaiah 5. For time's sake, I'll just read it to you. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Let me sing now for my well-beloved and a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in, in it. Why then I expected it to produce good grapes? Did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its walls and I will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. See, now Jesus here in the New Testament in John 15 declaring himself the true vine has changed this. No longer, no longer is the life source for them a covenant with Israel, but it's a connection with Jesus Christ. The closer we are to Christ is the, closer, the closest thing we will have to truly understanding his grace and his mercy and understanding all the previous I am statements that he's made here. This is the seventh I am statement here in John. Jesus is declaring and, and connecting himself with God the Father. He's establishing his deity here in John, and he wants these disciples to fully understand it, that there's going to come a point where they're not going to see, him, see from him soon. He's 24 hours away from going to the cross. And in, a, and in that process, Judas Iscariot is going to betray him. And, he's, and re, even as he's speaking here in John 15, he's probably right then making the transaction, seeking 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. And we cannot lose sight of that because that's a big part of John 15. Oftentimes we teach John 15 and we separate it, but there's a big aspect here that God is trying to get across. He's saying, you are my disciples. Don't leave me, don't forsake me. Do not leave the love that I've given you. Do not deny the I am statements. The, the, word, is, the word truth it's, it's eternal. It's heavenly and it's divine. Why the vine? Because it represents lowliness, demonstrates humility. Um, it's, a, it's a close, permanent, vital union between the vine and the branches. It's symbolic of belonging. We all have that in, innate desire to belong to something bigger, to be a part of something. And a branch must have a reliance on Christ. We must have a reliance on Christ. Without him, we are nothing. If you do not have a reliance on Christ, you've got to ask yourself, what are you connected to? Where, where's, where's your hope? Where's your trust? You know, whether it's you know, in your bank account, you know, it's your education, your status, your fame. Maybe it's your position. Maybe it's your possessions, your relationships. Maybe it's even your church. Maybe it's just fleshly desires that carry you to and fro. First one Second part of verse one, we've gotten real far here. My father is the vine dresser. 
What a loving, caring father. If you go back to what we just read in Isaiah, is that he's done everything, the father explains. Very clearly in details lays out, I've done everything. I don't know why I expected you know, anything but grapes. Why would I not expect a bountiful harvest? I've done everything for the care of that harvest. But yet, what, what brings forth? Wild grapes. The thing about wild grapes is you don't have to, you don't have to do anything for them to spring up. In fact, they're basically poisonous. They're bitter. And if we do nothing with our faith, then it's exactly what springs up, this bitterness. The more distant we are from Christ, that's what will, will be the example that we leave for others, is bitterness. There's two forms of branches that are spelled out here in John 15. You've got the branches that bear fruit and those that don't. Those that bear fruit representing Christ pointing to Christ, examples, something desirable that we would all want. No greater compliment, I think, for a believer than to have someone say, I want what you have. I want that fruit. Be easy to look at the branch in verse two and compare it to the branch in verse six. I personally believe there's a difference, and I'll explain why. Let's look at verse two. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now, if you look at verse 6, and many will link these two together. I'm not here to debate it, but I will point this out. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. See, my belief, if you look at the original context of this chapter, coming on the heels of chapter 14, and you you look also at the original Greek of that word, um, he takes away... That word also means he lifts up. And it's, you know, it's the Greek verb is arrow. And so the, the Lord sees us in a condition that we're not currently in. And so the vineyards back then in those days, they would be low-growing vines, and you often would prop up, you would clean those vines. So the word pruning there also means to purge or to clean. And so they would prop up these vines with stones and rocks underneath them in preparation, knowing that those branches, those vines, would get heavy, heavy with the fruit. And so in preparation, the Lord says, I lift up. So while there is no fruit in your life now, God sees you with that. He knows that as he provides for you, there'll be fruit. As he, as he cares for you, as he's gone to the cross for you, as he's taken on every burden and every sin in your life, that we have, you and I have committed and will commit, he sees the fruit and the blessings from that. But see, there's a difference in verse 6. It's not only do they not bear fruit, but they, they've withered and they died by disconnection to the vine. It doesn't, it doesn't take long for that to happen. When you're distant from Christ, death occurs. See, and this is the tragedy that I referred to earlier that within the church. Often we find ourselves falling into sin being ashamed of who we are and distancing ourselves from fellowship with other believers. And that's where the enemy has a field day in our lives. So I think many pastors, they, they present this wrong. They, the focus is on the sheer agony of you know, submission, the sheer agony of being pruned, um, and it's a lot about what God has to take away from us. You know, but I, I, would, I would argue that 
a much healthier way to look at it is that God loves you so much that he's willing to lift you up in preparation for the work he's going to do through you. And it's not a matter of, you know, all that the Lord's taking from you, but all that he's given you. All that he's given you by going to the cross. For him to do what you cannot do on your own. I'm going in a place where you can't go. You can't go with me. Verse 6 says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. They're cut away with no regard. There's no value to the Father. And we have to look at it and say that we as a Christian ought to represent Christ. There should always be fruit. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, with God prepared beforehand that he would walk in them. And James 2.17 says, Thus also by faith by itself it does not have works, it is dead. Jesus said a true believer can be tested by his fruit. John the Baptist recognized this. You know, he understood that between salvation and fruit bearing, there's a, there's a connection. And when he saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to be baptized, he said this to them. He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Will you turn with me? Turn to Matthew chapter 7. We will pick up at verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will now know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear Sorry, I lost my place there. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. My friends, that is a scary passage. Because really, what's being said there is that there will be many that will profess Christ with their, with their mouths. They will do works. They will, do, they will have actions and things that the world may perceive as followers of Christ. But God says, you never knew me. And so I think that's a scary place to be. He'll test us by our fruit. He'll look at to see what, what, what do we exemplify in our lives? And so, scary, isn't it? So, God, the loving God, he's pointing them to the I am statements. Who he is, his character, who he represents. And God cannot deny his own character. He knows at this point, though, if you take this in context, he knows being 24 hours away that the disciples are going to be distant from him that they're going to separate themselves. And that, and that some will even deny him. Peter will deny him three times. But they all become distant, and they'll all come back to him. Christ calls us not to focus on a life of no, but a life of yes with him. 
Um, you know, to know what that looks like, we have to look at what the fruit is that God's looking for in our lives. And so turn with me to Galatians 5. Pick up at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand. Just as I also told you in time past that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he's laid out many of the things that we see in this world, right? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Against such there is no law. To experience the love of Christ, there is nothing that can stop it. There's no law that can hinder it. What's interesting, too, is that when you talk about the fruit of the Spirit, it's singular. You know, because, you know, you think it would be fruits of the Spirit, right? It's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, etc. Because I think, and I think that's because it's all basis and a byproduct of love. And they're all interconnected. You know, with love, you can you have joy, you can have peace, you can have long-suffering. And likely, if, we have, if we're long-suffering, it'll bring us peace, and we'll be patient with those around us. We'll have goodness, we'll be faithful, we'll be gentle to those if we're patient with them. And so they're so deeply interconnected, but they're all a byproduct of God's love. And so... This is the life, this is the fruit that we're supposed to produce. This is what's supposed to be evident in our lives, that people would desire it and see it and want to, be, to have it in their own lives. And so when we look at an abiding faith in Christ, there's three things I think we need to know. And, and so if you're note takers, we're going to discuss three areas I think we need to put into practice to have a true abiding faith. The first one is to abide in Christ with persistence. We must purpose to be as close to the source Christ as possible. Over eight verses, you're going you're gonna to see the word abide seven times there in, J- in John 15. And that word means to remain in, to stay put, to not to depart, to continually resign, to tarry, to carry, to plug. Um, you know, you have the ability to plug or stay put into, into those words there, abide, through those verses, particularly verse four, and read it for yourself. To stay put, stay put in me. Don't leave me, the Lord's saying. There's going to come a time when you're going to feel tempted to compartmentalize your faith, and you're not going to see me anymore. You're going to question everything I taught you. You're going to question my character. You're going to question whether I'll be coming back for you. But stay put. Stay in me. Do we live every moment for Jesus Christ? Look back at your week this week. I think if we honestly, we look back, I don't think any of us can say we've spent the whole week in Christ. You know, what'd you do for entertainment this week? You, where'd you spend your time? Who'd you spend it with? How did you act when you were doing it? The truth is, it's, it's hard, isn't it? We can't spend every moment in Christ. 
It's, al- it's almost impossible. But we need him to live through us. We need to seek him in everything. You know, and, and Jesus here, he explains, he says, I, I'm the true vine. I understand my calling. And in fact, I'm going to the cross here. I know what I'm going to do. The, the Father has called me. You, you, you're the branches. You're a conduit. You're going to carry out the fruit and the love that God has given me and cared for me as the vine, and he cares for the branches that are attached to it. You're going you're to fulfill that. You're going to be a conduit of my love and my grace and my mercy, all that I endure. So without Christ, the branch is good for nothing, he says. Ezekiel 15, 1 through 3 speaks of this. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any wood of branch which is among the trees of the forest? Can wood be taken from it to make anything, or can men take a peg from it to which to hang any vessel? See, the wood of a vine is pretty useless outside of what it is, a life source for the branches and for the fruit. And without Christ, we as branches, we're useless. We're good for nothing. We are only a conduit. I had many fruit trees on my property. You know, everyone seemed to have, like, favorite fruit, you know. Um, One of the more popular ones was, you know, a fig tree on our property. Um, You know, and sometimes people would, you know, there'd be little plants, little trees that would pop up on the property. And inevitably, people would want them. You know, they'd dig them up, take them home, whatever. But... And so sometimes that happened. Nobody wanted to do it themselves. They always wanted me to dig up the trees and give it to them, right? And so that's that's a lot of what our faith is like, right? It looks good for someone else to take care of, but, you know, for me to take any steps and staying close to the Lord, you know, I want to stop there. But how foolish would it be for me to just break a branch off one of these fruit trees and hand it to a friend and say, "Here, here, here's your fruit tree. But without the roots, without the source, it does nothing. It's going to wither and die and quickly. You can't. Long-distance relationships just don't work. And, and definitely doesn't work in the kingdom of God. And so Colossians 1.10 tells us, Walk in the manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. We ought to be constantly increasing in his knowledge. Constantly looking for ways to grow. Realizing that those pruning, that cleaning, that purging that God does in our lives is really to grow us. For the the perverse one is hateful to Jehovah, but his intimacy is with the righteous, Proverbs 3.32 tells us. And James 4.8 tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We often compartmentalize our faith, and we, we like to think, well, you know, God, you can have control of this over here, but I, I, I don't want you touching this. This, this I've got under control. This, this I, I trust and I know what I'm doing. And so I, I don't know what season you're in right now, but God, is, God has put me in different seasons. And what I've realized over the time is that he's prepared me for those seasons ahead of time. And he, that, that purging, that cleaning, and that work he's doing is for, usually for a later season. And so, you know, for me, the season I'm in right now, everything changed for Autumn and I, my wife, August 12th. Came home from vacation, having a great time, and I found her about three, four o'clock in the morning, having a seizure in our bathroom, unconscious. Um, later, we would find out after st- struggling for months without diagnosis that she um, has epilepsy and um, and some other issues. But a whole new season, and I don't think we would have been able to handle it had gotten up, 
been preparing us all these years for different things, had not been showing us things, teaching us, removing things from our lives, just cleansing us. And so much good fruit has come from it, even though I wish it on nobody. I don't wish anyone to watch their loved one go through pain and agony and not be able to do anything for it. And so God is faithful. God, through this trial and through this season, has shown us what it's like to be just praying and seeking him and drawing nearer to him than ever before. For me, founder, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, don't know why the Lord woke me up, but he did, and I'm so thankful. But every, how many mornings now do I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning just stirred by the Lord and just find that most intimate time of devotional, praying, crying out to him like I've never cried before. Almost every morning at 3 a.m. I'm up. I am not a morning person. That is the work of God. <laughs> now, I won't lie. Sometimes I fall back asleep and get up later. But, but God is good. And he's taken this time to do a work in my wife, in me, my family, to have us witness restoration in family members because of this illness that we didn't think was possible. He's a gracious God. It's a refining work to draw near to God because he will refine you. He will prune you. So that brings me to my second point that you need to yield to God's pruning, his cleaning. We must trust God knows better. The enemy of the great is the merely good. Just to settle for what is. To look at the plum tree and say, it looks good, I don't want to touch it. Why would I cut away at something that looks good? See, because God has, he wants to grow fruit. He's not looking to have a vine that's just plentiful and and leaves and looks good. He wants to bear fruit and more of it. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 speaks of how God disciplines us in love. You know, and unfortunately that's really the way that sometimes God does his pruning work is that we find ourselves in a spot where he needs to discipline us. He needs to draw us back to himself. He needs to remove things from our lives. And Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 says this, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor faint when they are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplined us for our good, for our good, that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained in it, Afterwards, it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness. My friends, I've experienced it in my life. I would want it for every, each and every one of you. There is great peace to be abiding in Christ. The great tragedy is when I watch fellow saints distance themselves from the Lord, believing that they can't come back to him. God often wants to purge things that look good on the surface. You know, I think it was Oswald Chambers that said, an unguarded strength is a double weakness. We often, we can recognize our weaknesses. We know, we know the areas of temptation in our lives, and a lot of times we can put those safeguards up. And we know we're not going to fall in those areas. But the question really is, is you know, do we recognize you know, our strengths and to know that 
our strengths usually is where we put our trust and we ignore our trust in Christ and our need and our dependency for him. Because we don't just need Christ. We desperately need him. And so the, the leaves of our lives, you know, they look pretty, but the Lord isn't about leaves. He's about fruit. God may ask you to prune your priorities, to rearrange your life somehow, to let you refocus. He may ask you to prune some you know, relational attachments, maybe just relation with a loved one. That maybe it's weighing you down, it's burdensome, it's causing you distance from him. Maybe he's asking you to prune values, things that you value, and that were maybe acceptable at one time in your life, but now they're not. God may ask you to prune you know, your leisure time, that you may have more time to focus on him, spend more time with him, the things that he cares about. See, this is what he did for the disciples. He said, leave your nets. I, I, I don't want you to be fishermen, I want you to be fishers of men. Was it wrong to be a fisherman? No. But God has a calling. He has a calling for us. He has a direction for us. Pruning is God's way of making room in your life for more of what matters the most. Pruning is God's way of making room in your life for, for what matters most. Something's got to give, usually. You might not understand the current trial you're going through. I don't understand the trial I'm going through with my wife. I can't fully understand it but I can accept God's grace and his mercy and his love for my wife. He's taught me to pray in ways I've never prayed before. I wish I could tell you that I was praying and seeking him all the time the way I am now. Not so. This beard, this homeless beard I got going on here, I got, like, I got this weird beard fetish thing going on, and I tell you that only because like, I'm constantly touching it. You know, It's like a bad habit. And so it really would have... Autumn loves the beard. I don't really like it. I'd shave it off. But, you know, I kept that beard, and I've been growing it just, cause, just as a reminder to pray for my wife. Because I find myself touching it, and it just reminds me to pray. And, you know, it's, 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 that's, the, that's the kind of stuff God's doing, and he's restoring relationships. He's allowed Autumn and I, because of this trial, to minister to other people that once couldn't relate to, and to have them minister to us. And it's a beautiful thing when the saints... And the body of believers of Christ understand that all that God has done for us on the cross. And that we already have this victory. And we are nothing if we separate ourselves from it and we walk from it. Brings me to my third point. We need to partake of God's fruit. We need to partake of God's love. You know, when we accept his love and his grace and his mercy for us, there's an exponential growth that happens in us. God is good. We're able to share that love. I told you about the fig trees on my property. You know, it's interesting about those fig trees. Everybody loved those things. The coyotes, the birds, the rodents, the squirrels. And so when the animals would carry off the figs, the little trees would sprout up all over the property. And that's the way God's love is. You know, if it's if something good, it's something tangible, it's something desirable, people will want it. People will ask you, I want what you have. And that's the kind of lives we as Christians ought to live. We ought to partake. We don't do it, though. If we deny who he is and what he did on the cross, then we, we miss out. We rob ourselves of that glory and that joy in him. What we are is God's gift to us. What we become is our gift to God. God wants to bless us that we would live out that blessing, that it would be something desirable 
Listen, something interesting happens when you look at, you really take John 15 and you look at the bigger picture. Because what you see in John 14 is the Lord explaining that one of them is going to betray him. And, you know, we come to realize that that's Judas. He'd sell God out for, you know, 30 pieces of silver. But the truth of the matter is all the disciples who were raised with him, walked closely with him, followed him, they all, they all find themselves distanced from him at some point. And maybe the greatest example is this Peter. It's Peter denying him, not, not once, but three times, exactly as the Lord would tell him he's going to. But there's something about, there's a lot I, I recognize in Peter and myself, is that I want to take things into my own hands. Robs me of the trust in his glory. And see, Peter, as distant as he was, and in how he did deny him, he found himself in the high court, watch, seeing, going, he still followed Jesus there. But yet, out on the outskirts of the, the high court, a woman would confront him and say, aren't you one of him? No, Peter would deny him. Aren't you a Galilean? No. Didn't, then another, don't I recognize you from the night before? No. Denying him three times, just as the Lord would predict. But yet to deny him, there was something about that that I think is overlooked, is that he still was near to Jesus. He couldn't help himself. He had to know what was going on. It's like looking at a car accident, and you just driving by, you have to look, right? You don't just drive by, right? Everybody looks. But there, Peter was ready. Yes, he denied him. And yes, even, even in the midst of Jesus being arrested, who, who, drew, who drew a sword? Peter. Wounding the soldier's ear, cutting it. And this is from probably where I relate most to Peter. Couldn't, couldn't even do that right. Another lesson. What does Jesus say to him when he draws his sword and cuts the guy's ear? Cover your sword. Live by the sword, die by the sword. What does Jesus do? He heals the man. Heals his ear. No, he came to heal. He wasn't going to live by the sword. See, when my wife was in the hospital, we didn't know the diagnosis. And there was a lot of fighting in the hospital as far as trying to get the right treatments. Later, we would finally get the medical records at the house as we're still trying to figure things out, we requested all the medical records. And when I read through them, you know, we were dubbed, um, or I was dubbed, hostile. <laughs> the doctor put hostile in there. Kind of humbling. Because when you want to take things into your own hand, yes, you want treatment for your wife. Yes, you love your wife. You'll do anything. You'll argue with the doctors that they, you know, hey, how can one doctor prescribe this treatment, want this test done, and this one won't. But did I trust? Did I believe that Jesus was there to heal? Or did I want to live by the sword and die by the sword? Humbling. But you know, there's hope, because when we look, if we look at Peter, Peter not only does he deny Jesus three times, but after, after Jesus' resurrection, he reveals himself to the disciples, and on the third time he reveals himself, they're out fishing again. They've gone back to what they know. And there, Peter is in the boat 
with the other disciples. And there comes a point where John says, him being the disciple that Jesus loves, of course, he says this. He says, there I see the Lord on the shore. Peter not recognizing him at first again. What does Peter do? He girds himself, jumps in the water, and swims to him, leaving the other disciples behind. Let them bring in the fish. So excited to see the Lord. A love and a zeal for him. Knowing that under any condition he can come back to him. We want to hide ourselves and distance ourselves when we see the sin in our life. Believing we're not worthy to come back to him. But Jesus greets him on the shore. Willing to feed him. After calling out to him saying, are you hungry? Have you caught anything? Cast your nets on the right side. But Peter, do you love me, he says. And it says Peter was grieved because he asked him three times, do you love me? In the semantics, Peter says, I love you with a phileo love, a brotherly love. Jesus offering an agape love, an unconditional love. Do you think it resonated with him that he denied Christ three times? And now Christ asked him three times, do you love me? And Jesus would give him three exhortations. If you love me, feed my sheep, care for them, and follow me. If we to love Christ, we ought to follow him. We ought to be close to him. We ought to be as close to him as we can be. Jesus didn't chastise him. He didn't say, Peter, are you sorry? Have you asked for forgiveness? Have you repented? No, he went right to the heart and said, do you love me? If you love me, follow me. Be close to me. Do not forsake me. Do not leave me. You have no reason to be ashamed to come to me. And so each and every one of the disciples would die a martyr's death. In closing, and Jesus predicted this. Luke um, 22, 31 through 33, he speaks of this. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Satan, right now, Jesus prays for you right now. He knows Satan would want to sift you. He would want to separate you. He would have you believe that you don't belong here even today. But he prays for you. He loves you. And that, you, that you're going to fail. He knows that. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. But when you have returned to me, when you have repented, strengthen your brethren. See, the, the other disciples, they were going to follow him. Jesus knew the other, follow, the other disciples would follow Peter. He was a leader. And that's why that day in that boat, it was Peter who said, I'm going fishing. And the other disciples said, I will go with you. 